take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14 and beginning in verse 22. And we'll read through verse 26. And as they were... Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Uh, you may be seated. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh Lord, we come to you today and we see your hand of providence in our lives in, in all kinds of ways. Uh, but Lord, I am just reminded of it once again this morning as we prepare to open this text on the same Sunday that we are celebrating the Lord's Supper. That was not the original plan, but that's what you planned. And we're so thankful for that. And just pray, God, that you would open our, our hearts, our minds, our, our wills, Lord, to receive your word this morning. And Father, I especially want to pray for those that may be here or listening who don't know you. And God, I pray that they would hear words of life today that they have never heard before and that they would respond by faith as you work in their hearts. Oh God, we praise you and we thank you in your name. Amen. Well, it's the Passover in Jerusalem and a lamb would have had to been taken to the temple and there it would have been ritually slaughtered. And then the lamb, having been butchered and prepared, not to be gross, but he would be brought back and roasted for the Passover. And kids, the Passover, as you may know, is a, is a meal. It's a celebration. It's, it's sort of as close as I could think of an analogy would be like our Thanksgiving. Only uh, probably more intentional even than our Thanksgiving. Because some of our Thanksgivings are, are really just about food and talking and getting together with relatives and friends and and that's about it. Maybe there's not much talk about God and stuff, but or even much Thanksgiving in some cases, unfortunately. But, you know, in this case, it was very intentionally speaking of God. So it was a meal. And the meal would begin with a cup of wine. As a matter of fact, throughout the meal, there would be four cups of wine. And one at the beginning. And there would be served that cup. And then hors d'oeuvres, which would be green herbs. And, and, and then the sauce. And then occurred the so-called Haggadah, okay, where the son would ask the father, what does this mean? In other words, what does this meal mean? Because this wasn't just a meal to have with other people, but it was to remind God's people of what he had done in delivering them from Egypt and then taking them into the promised land. So the son would always ask this, and then the father would recite the story of Deuteronomy 6. And it would sort of be like, uh, it would sort of be uh, sort of a sermon that followed after that, sort of giving an explanation to remind them. And then they would take their Psalters and they would open to Psalm 113 to 118. These are known as the Hallel songs. And they would begin to sing Psalm 113 and Psalm 114. And then after they sang uh, those songs, then they would have the ritual of unleavened bread. And that would be before the Passover meal. And, and it would normally be eaten in silence. But this time, things were different. This time, when Jesus 
passed out the bread, rather than being in silence, Jesus said, take, this is my body. Well, then the main course came out and they had roasted lamb and a sauce, sort of a fruit kind of puree, and then the second cup of wine. And then eventually, uh, some time later, then they would have the third cup of wine, and this was the cup of blessing. Now, unless you think that these guys were soused by now because they've had so much wine, it was a little watered down, okay? But uh, anyway, they, they had this third cup of wine, and that was the cup of blessing. And that was the cup at which Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And then they would sing again. They would sing Psalm 115, 16, 17, and 18. And then normally then they would have the fourth cup of, of wine. Now, you notice here that Jesus takes the, the Passover meal and he sort of hijacks it. And, and he does a couple of things different. Number one, during the unleavened bread, he instead of silence, he says, this is my body. And then uh, during the third cup of blessing, then he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, what Jesus was doing was what, what we do in the Lord's Supper as we come like this morning to partake of that is we sort of focus on those. It's not so much a Passover meal as much as it is the Lord's Supper. And, and Jesus speaks of this meal in several ways. Because you might say, what are you doing, Jesus? What are you, what are you trying to get across? And he wants us to understand that this is a covenantal meal. We are a covenant people. We have been brought into a covenant relationship with God. And, and this is very important to understand this because it will not only help us understand the Lord's Supper this morning better, but it will also help us understand our relationship with God. So I want to begin this morning by just sort of sharing uh, covenants, just talking about covenants a little bit in the Near East. Now, I, I hope next year, Lord willing, next spring, our Sunday, adult Sunday school class will be on covenant. And uh, I'll be teaching in more detail, but I'll try to refrain from giving you all that information this morning, okay? <laughs> uh, because as we understand how covenants worked in the ancient Near East, then we're going to understand the covenant that God made with man according to Scripture. So the first point I want you to see as we look at this text is the Supper Speaks of Covenant. The Supper Speaks of Covenant. Now, in the ancient Near East, for those of you maybe that didn't, haven't grown up in a Presbyterian church or Reformed <laughs> background, you may go, what is a covenant? And if I ask you kids, you could probably tell me, right? It's an agreement between two or more persons, right? Uh, it's a binding agreement between two parties. We might sort of think of it as a treaty. And oftentimes it would happen between a greater power and a lesser power. Now, sometimes covenants were made amongst equals in the Bible, and we see that in various uh, situations. But oftentimes it's made between one nation that's very powerful that has defeated another nation. And they have a choice. They can either just wipe out that weaker nation, or maybe they could enter into a covenant with them. And oftentimes that's what they would do. And so the stronger nation, the stronger party, the, the mightier king would be known as the suzerain. Uh, king and then the weaker king would be known as the vassal king Okay, and and the details of the covenant might vary a little bit depending on nation But they all sort of contain the same kind of elements and what a covenant oftentimes looked at it Like I said, it's sort of like a contract sort of like an agreement uh, And it would sort of list out who the parties are 
and, and what's their relation, it would describe their relationship with one another. It would clearly identify who the suzerain king was and who the vassal king was. And then it would go on to talk about the stipulations of the covenant. Now this is what was required of the vassal, okay? This is what they had to do. And, uh, and then the second part was the sanctions. These were the consequences. If the vassal kept the covenant and did what they were supposed to do, then these are the blessings that they would receive as a result of that. If they did not keep the covenant, then these would be the consequences of what would happen as well. So oftentimes when it talks about the blessings of the covenant, it would talk about what the suzerain king would do for the vassal state. Okay, are you with me so far? So in other words, the king might say, look, we'll give you military protection. We won't let any of your enemies defeat you. We'll be your bodyguards. We'll protect you. We may give you food. We may give you land. We may give you these certain privileges and protections because of that. But if you break the covenant, then these are the curses that will come upon you. And typically, the curses involve like total annihilation of everybody, right? So, you know, it was very serious, you know, that you wanted to keep the covenant. And uh, so, so they did. Now, the last part of the covenant uh, involved the witnesses and stuff. So that was sort of the covenant document. And they would make copies of that, and each party would get that covenant. But that covenant had to be enacted. It had to be ratified. And the way that typically happened was is they might have a meal where they'd sit down and they would eat together. But, uh, but always there was this sense in which there was blood that was spilled. It was really sort of a messy, gory process because what happened was is they would take an animal, forgive me kids, but they would, some adults, they would cut them in two and then they would spread those parts apart and they would make a row of bodies like that and then the vassal king, not the suzerain king, but the vassal king would have to walk in between those pieces and what he was basically saying was this. He was, he was uh, basically saying, may it be to me like these animals if I break this covenant. Okay? In other words, I'm putting my life on the line that we are going to keep this covenant. And uh, this kind of uh, practice was so well known that when it came to making a covenant, actually it was referred to as cutting a covenant okay as a matter of fact if you read your bibles in the old testament especially and you're reading your bible and it'll say and they made a covenant if you look at the hebrew word you know i can i can bet you a million dollars it's the hebrew word for cut it's to cut a covenant and so um it was very it came to be known as that now notice what jesus says uh in verse 24 he talks of the blood of the covenant. His blood being the blood of the covenant. That's actually an illusion that he's making back to Israel's history. When God would give different manifestations of the covenant that he made with his people. And it, it would most likely have made these disciples think about the Mosaic covenant. In other words, the covenant that God made during the time of Moses. Uh, so if you would, turn back with me to Exodus 24, okay? If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 64. Um, Exodus 24. 
And here in Exodus 24, you'll notice that it's just a few chapters after Moses received the Ten Commandments, okay? And, and other laws at, at the top of Mount Sinai. And essentially, God is making a covenant with Israel. And, and, and God is like the, the suzerain of all suzerains, right? He's the mightiest of the mighty. And, and so God has laid out the stipulations of the covenant. He's given them not only ten, the Ten Commandments, but the other laws as well. But the Ten Commandments were sort of a summation of, of the various laws. And he's given those to the people to keep. Well, look at verse 3. And as, as God says this, it says in verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. He's given us the stipulations, and we will keep those. And so Moses wrote up all the words of the Lord into the book of the covenant. And then look at verse 7. Uh, it says in verse 7 that he formally read them before everyone. And the people then again said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. So here, you see that ratification, that, that instituting of, of the covenant, of the Mosaic covenant. The people are submitting themselves to the Lord of their suzerain. And they vow to keep all the stipulations. Now, notice that they didn't just make the covenant, but here again, there's blood that's involved in this. Look at verse 5. It says, They spilled the blood of animals on the altar of the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, but just before they did that, uh, Moses had built 12 pillars. Now, why 12? Why? Was it because it was a dozen? That's an even number? No, uh, of course not. It's, it's because it represented the 12 tribes of Israel. It represented God's people. And, and the animals that would be sacrificed on the altar represented Israel. So if Israel did not obey God's laws as they had vowed, then their fate would be like that of the slaughtered animals. And if the identification of Israel with the animals wasn't clear enough, then we even see that Moses takes the blood of the animals, and what's he do? Look at verse 8. He sprinkles that on the people. It says, And behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, you see this covenant. This is a serious thing before the Lord. But the thing that's interesting is, is at the end of the day, the Israelites did not keep the covenant. They did not keep the laws that God had given. As a matter of fact, it wasn't very long after that that they sinned terribly against the Lord. And, and what was the result? Well, they suffered the consequences. And what were the consequences? Well, you know, there's blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. But if you look at Deuteronomy 28, you don't have to turn there this morning, but I would encourage you to read over that this afternoon. There were the sanctions, the blessings and the curses that were given to, to Israel. And if I could sort of summarize it this way, the blessings is, is that they would be blessed with prosperity in the land. They would have health and the Lord would do things for them in, in the promised land. But the curses really revolved around that they would suffer in the promised land and eventually the final curse would be that they would be removed in exile from the promised land and, and that's what ended up happening of course they kept breaking God's covenant time and time again and God sent prophets to warn them that the covenant curses would come and that they were going to fall upon them but they persisted in their rebellion now let me stop and go down a rabbit trail just a second this morning you may be here and you may confuse 
God's long-suffering with the fact that he's not going to keep his word. Don't fall into that trap, brothers and sisters. You could be here this morning, and your life could be a life of duplicity, where you are living in known sin and conscious sin, and yet you want to be here at church, and you want to be in Bible study, and you want to appear, appear to be this great Christian, and you're sort of living this duplicitous life, and nothing has happened to you, and you think, oh, it's okay, I'll be fine. But don't mock God, brothers and sisters. He will keep His word. Just because He's patient and long-suffering, just like He was with Israel, because that's what they thought. You know, what's God going to do? He hasn't struck us dead yet, so it's fine. But God's judgment will come in the end upon the unrighteous. And so, please, please, please listen to the Word of God and understand that God is faithful to His Word and He will keep that. And so God enacts the sanctions and He sent His people into exile because they broke the covenant. But before God sends them into exile, He makes a promise through the prophets uh, that there will be a new covenant. Turn, if you would, to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. In verse 3, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 658. Behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah says, declares the Lord, when, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the days when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. You see, so after the people broke the Mosaic covenant and were sent into exile, after they received these words, well, God eventually brought them back uh, to the promised land. And, and you read about that in the book of Nehemiah. And even in the book of Ezra, the, uh, the law was given to the people, and there was this renewal of the covenant. By the way, next year, in addition to studying the covenants, we're also going to be, I'm going to be preaching through Ezra and Nehemiah as well. So we're going to look at that much closer and focus in on that much more. But they, they, uh, they made this covenant renewal, and they started trying to keep the terms of the Mosaic covenant. But again, you know, this is not the new covenant that Jeremiah spoke about because Jeremiah spoke about a new covenant that would be better than the old. So the people come back and they renew the covenant, but um, there was really nothing new or better about this. They were still in a, in a very bad state. They were still under foreign occupation. They were really nothing more than slaves in one sense in the promised land. They were under foreign rule. And they were still sinful people that struggled to keep the Mosaic Covenant. But, but Jeremiah had prophesied a better covenant. The covenant he talked about was one where God would write his laws on the hearts and the minds of his people. Uh, you see, the, the covenant God was going to make with his people would be one that they would not be able to break. You see, the, one, the old covenant was one that they could break. And that's because in the old covenant... The stipulations of the covenant were to be kept by whom? The vassal. It was by us. They were taken up by sinful people who vowed to keep all the laws, but guess what? 
over and over and over failed to do so. Now, we can stand here in judgment of them and say, I can't believe they would do that. I can't believe they would be such people. Brothers and sisters, we are such people, are we not? You know, we struggle uh, with sin and we give in to that. Well, okay, back to Mark 14. We see uh, why the new covenant is so much better. And so Jesus' actions in this first Lord's Supper is essentially a ceremony to ratify a new covenant. Jesus tells us that the bread and the wine represent him. Jesus gives them his body and blood in the making of the new covenant. And should the covenant be broken, I should say, would it, if it, maybe would it. Yeah, it definitely will be. It's not if it'll be broken, it's when it will be broken, right? And when it happens, it will be Christ's death, not our death. And of course, this was more than just a pledge by Jesus. Right after the meal, Jesus was going to the cross. Right after the meal, Judas betrayed him, right? Turned him over to the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes. And the next day, he shed his blood upon the cross for us. Jesus pledges his blood for the keeping of the new covenant. And this tells us so wonderfully about what Christ has done for us. In one sense, he keeps the covenant for us. I mean, think about that. He, uh, Jesus, is fully a man, completely a man, right? He, and so as a man, he can come and he represents us in our humanity. But he's different from us. He did not sin, right? If you were going to get to heaven by keeping the law, what would you have to do? You would have to keep it perfectly. No sin whatsoever. Our problem is we are born sinners. So we can never keep the law perfectly. But Christ kept the law perfectly. And he earned the blessings of the covenant for us. And so when we talk about how we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have those blessings that Christ has earned for us. And has given to us. When he died upon the cross. He gave us. His righteousness. So when God looks at us, He doesn't see all the sin that we have done. He sees a, a morally perfect person, which is what His Son has done and has credited to our accounts. Now for us, though, on the other hand, we sin. Do we not? We sin. We deserve the covenant curses and death. So Christ not only has given us His righteousness, and accredited that to our account, but he has also taken those curses and that death that is ours, should be ours, and he took that upon himself so that we would not have to die. And if we are under the new covenant, then it's not our death, but it is Christ's death. Amen? Amen. Amen. So Christ died once for all. He took the curse of the covenant for us. And unlike the many sacrifices of the old covenant, his sacrifice was sufficient once and for all. Because he not only is fully man, but he is also fully God, completely God. And so on the cross, Jesus' sacrifice would be expiation. It would, be, uh, it would satisfy the debt, the debt to God that we owe to him. The way we would say it today is he would pay the penalty for our sin. But he, he satisfied 
the wrath of God that should have been poured out upon us. And that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he said, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Praise be to God. Amen. Well, the disciples then, as Jesus says this to them, they were called to trust this promise that he was making, of this new covenant that he was instituting. If so, they would then benefit from the body and blood. It would mean for them salvation. But it's the same for us on the other side of the cross as well. We too are offered to be part of this covenant by faith in Jesus Christ. By faith we're made partakers of the new covenant. We too then benefit from the body and the blood of Christ. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper today, brothers and sisters, this is a table of celebration. I don't want to say partying because I don't want to degrade it in any way. But it is a time of celebration. It, it, it's a sort of a covenant renewal ceremony. But it, but it also looks forward to the final realization of this new covenant. You know, see, we've already tasted of the new covenant. If you're a brother, if you're a, a Christian here today, a brother or sister in Christ, then you have tasted of the new covenant, but you haven't fully tasted of it here upon this earth. You see, with Christ's death on the cross, He inaugurated the new covenant, but He has not consummated it, right? It's not finished yet. And, and so we see that the Supper speaks of the covenant. But I also want you to see as our second point is that the Supper speaks of the consummation. It speaks of the end of yet to come. And just think about Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 31. He promised that the new covenant would be where God writes His law on our hearts and upon our minds. And that means we won't sin any longer. His law will be perfectly written there. And we've already begun to taste that in the sense that God has given us. He has sent His Spirit to circumcise our hearts. Right? He took our hearts of stone and made them hearts of flesh. He is working in our hearts to transform us. That's what sanctification is all about. You see in your life, as you look backwards, look ten years back down into the history of your life, and what are you going to see? Wow, I can't believe I watched those TV shows. I cannot believe that my attitude towards a person who sinned against me was like this. And I can't believe, because what you've seen is Jesus working in you. Jesus making you like himself. And causing you to grow in Him. Praise be to God. He's molding our hearts and our minds to love and to keep His laws. But we know, all of us know. I don't, I don't think I have to convince one person of this. We don't do that perfectly yet. Amen? Amen. We don't. But the work will be complete when He returns. The work will be complete when He returns to consummate all the blessings of the new covenant. And that's why Jesus' words in verse 25 are looking forward. I'm not going to take this. I'm not going to drink this cup again until I'm in the kingdom, right? They're looking to something new. He'll drink the cup anew in the kingdom of God. So he's referring to the end. We will never be perfect here upon this earth. We will never keep his laws perfectly in our hearts and in our minds. But it's looking forward to his return when he brings us into the new heavens and the new earth. Then we will eat and we will drink anew with Him. We will celebrate His victory in a great heavenly feast. And that's all part of the blessings of the new covenant that Christ has earned for us. 
And so, brothers and sisters, saints, we are covenant people. If we trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then we are parties in this new covenant. That's why we sometimes talk about the church as God's covenant community. Maybe you, you hear that sometimes. Or we're a community that's defined by the covenant. You know, I think sometimes, especially in our day and time in which we live, people don't like the organized church. They don't like the institution of the church. They, they will talk about the many abuses. And you know what? Unfortunately, I hate to say this, but there are times when that's true. When, when even in the church we see sin. But what makes us an organized church is not man-made laws and rules. What makes us the people of God is His covenant that he has made with us. The covenant tells us how we are related to God and how we are even related to one another as well. And that's our defining charter. That is what characterizes us, you could say. That's even uh, why we believe children of believing parents are to be part of our covenant, of our community and our worship. Because God has said in his word that the promise is to us and to our children. Now, of course, not everybody who is visibly a part of the covenant community is really members of the covenant. Some of us may profess belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we don't really believe. We don't really have faith in Him. There may be our kids may grow up who belong to the covenant community, and they might grow up and they may say, I'm walking away, and they walk away from the church. Even believing adults sometimes can turn away from the Lord. And yet, what a small requirement for admission, isn't it? That He gives us, and that is to have faith. To trust Him. God calls us to believe. And it is really beautiful when you realize that's a gift from Him. But that's another sermon in and of itself. He calls us to trust our lives and our salvation to Him and His grace. Even in the Old Covenant, that's what the people were supposed to see. That they were supposed to see that while there were sacrifices that were being provided in the temple or the tabernacle, uh, that God was sending a greater sacrifice, an ultimate sacrifice. And there were many in the Old Covenant who did believe that, and we will see them in heaven one day. But the consistent testimony in Scripture is of our need for God to save us. And brothers and sisters, He has. Amen. He has. And that's why we, that's what we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. We are commanded to eat and drink. We are commanded to do this in faith. We are called to believe and trust. Now, what are we to have faith in? Well, that's the beauty of it. We are called to trust God. We are called to believe that He will keep His covenant. In the Mosaic Covenant, the blood representing Israel was put upon them. It was sprinkled on the people. And when they broke that covenant, then the blood was on their head. But in the New Covenant, the obligation is put upon God. God and the person of Jesus Christ died. He had His blood shed to keep uh, us from dying. So you could say, I guess in one sense, Jesus is both the suzerain and the vassal. And when keeping the covenant is up to people, uh, we should always be worried that there's going to be a breach of contract, right? Because we are always going to fail. 
But since the keeping of the covenant is up to the God-man, Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear. If you struggle this morning with your uh, salvation, maybe assurance of salvation is something that's hard to you. If that's where you're at, I'd love to talk with you or grab some other great saint in the church here that you love and you respect and have them walk you through the scripture. But, you know, if it was up to me, yes, I would have to struggle with the assurance of my salvation. But because the covenant is up to the God-man, Jesus Christ, I have nothing to fear because He holds me in His hand and He has promised to complete that which He has begun. His perfect obedience led Him to the cross where He completed all that was necessary. And that's why it's so important that as He hung on the cross, what did Jesus say? It is finished. It is finished. It's not that we add anything to what Christ has done. It is finished. And, and so, we, here we have it, right? We, we have this wonderful covenantal meal. Wherever we eat and drink of the Lord's Supper, we are being renewed in God's promises that He will save us. And He calls us back to Christ who died on the cross. And it, it calls us to look forward to the day of His return when all things will be made new and we will sup together with Him in the kingdom of God. Amen. 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 Let's bow our heads and, and meditate on such glorious truth and respond to the Lord appropriately silently. you have stirred our hearts to, to, to worship you and to praise you as you have reminded us of your great work upon us. Lord, you, you, you know the fickleness of our hearts. You know, Lord, that anything that depends upon us, as much as we think of ourselves as arrogant as we can be and as confident as we can be in our own abilities, oh, we are deceived. When we see the, the true nature of our hearts, we see, Lord, that we are easily led astray. And so we thank you, God, that you have uh, taken us out of the equation in essence and you have provided the way of salvation. So we come this morning, Lord, so thankful for your work in our lives and for, for giving us such a great promise and to enter into a covenant relationship with us, a new covenant, Lord. And we just ask, God, that as we continue to worship this morning, as we prepare to take of the Lord's Supper, that we could come with celebration in our hearts. That we could come to the table, Lord, appropriately, not flippantly, not, not harboring sin in our hearts, not uh, casual in, in our approach, but, Lord, with hearts full of thanksgiving and praise. We ask this all in your name. Amen. Amen.